Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. To holy communion with Him through His body broken for us and His blood shed for us. But it rapidly turns to trials while still seated, Jesus says, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so we enter into trials, and many trials that uh, are common to all mankind, and Jesus our high priest. And, and so as we come through this period of trials, we see that uh, Jesus would say in verse 28 last week, but you, speaking to those who are His followers, that would include me and you, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so we're in the middle of this continuum, the middle of this process. As um, uh, Peter would say on the day of uh, Pentecost, that all of these things that are happening were by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So as we continue on looking at these trials that Jesus is enduring, just keep in mind that He has told them many times over the last year. I must go to Jerusalem where I'll be spitefully treated, mocked, spit upon, and crucified and rise on the third day. So none of this is by accident. None of this is something that God didn't understand from the foundation of the earth that He would do. Uh, and yet, as we read this and we're looking at this 2,000 years ago, through the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of the apostles, and especially right here, the eyes of Luke, the historian, who has gathered all these things that we might have a full knowledge of what happened on our behalf there at that pivotal, pivotal day in all of history. So, we, we read uh, in verse 37, for I say to you that 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 this which is written must be accomplished, fulfilled, paid in full in me. And he quotes out of Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end, a sum total. And so all the things concerning him, all the scriptures, all the prophecies, he would tell the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you seek to find life. But these, these scriptures, are they which speak of me, and one of which is, he will be numbered amongst the transgressors. And so uh, he's had them get a knapsack, money bag, couple swords, and they're getting ready to get up and leave that evening. And so we read in the other gospels, they got up, they sang the closing hymns, that would be out of Psalm 118, you can kind of know what they were singing that night, and they walked out the door. Verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. We already saw in chapter 21 that this is where he would spend the night when he came into town at Passover. Remember, there's millions of people in town. All the hotels have been booked for months in advance. Not really. I don't think they had what, Expedia back then. But you had to fend for yourself, just like Joseph and Mary when they came into Bethlehem had to fend for themselves. Here he is again on the other side of life. <laughs> He's still trying to find a place to lay his head, right? And so they would go outside of the city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, and up onto a slope that you look across and you see all of Jerusalem's up in front of you, and on this hillside, it's covered with olive trees, and that's why they call it the Mount of Olives. Um, in John chapter 18, uh, where we get more information about these events, also Mark, or Mark 14 and Matthew 26, in John 18, it says that they crossed over the brook Kidron and came into the garden. 
That's about a 25-minute walk, approximately, from the upper room. Uh, they would have gone down through the city of David, across the brook Kidron. Kidron means murky, and that time of year at Passover, Josephus writes that 250,000 lambs were slaughtered. That blood would have been running down the Kidron Valley. And here, as Jesus has finished saying that I am that lamb who will take away the sins of the world. It is by my blood shed for you that I will redeem you to myself. They cross over that murky Kidron stream, and they come into this garden. In the other Gospels we read, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally translates to olive press. This is a place where they would harvest all the olives, gather them, and then with millstones, they would grind that. And if you know anything about olive oil, the oil comes from the pit, from the seed, okay? There's the flesh, you know, we eat that, and you'll get a juice from that, but fundamentally, it's crushing that pit that produces the oil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this passage saying, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so here we're going to see this passage, Jesus is going to be pressed, hard pressed, and the pressure that he's going to face is that temptation, as old as the world, that he would not have to go to the cross. He's already predetermined in his mind he's going to go to the cross. But these passages we're reading right here this morning are, are holy ground. I, I should take my shoes off. What we're looking at right here is where Jesus comes to that point. He's been saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. Now it's time to do it. And the doing of it causes him to go into deep prayer under intense pressure. You see, this, this temptation... Satan would love for you, Satan would love for Jesus to think, ah, that cross, that's foolishness. You don't need to do that, right? But the foolishness of the cross, it's life to those of us that believe, right? It's a joke to those who are perishing, the people who don't understand what Jesus did on that cross. But that is the heart, the nugget, the pit, the soul of all Christianity, that Christ, God, perfect, sinless man, went to the cross to take my sin, to take your sin, to take the sins of all mankind and bury them, never to be resurrected as far as east is from the west, and rose again on the third day. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the heart of all Christianity. You're not going to find that in Islam. You're not going to find that in Buddhism. You're not going to find that in all these other world religions. There are all kinds of systems by which we can work and attain our way to heaven. But the gospel is that God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross of Calvary, that if you will believe that, you won't perish, but you will have everlasting life. That's the message. And this is the, this is the moment that we see this all come to pass. So coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And just keep in mind, Judas knew this. Remember, when it was time to go to the upper room, Jesus sent Peter and James and said, when you see a man carrying a picture, go in there. And basically, he was getting Judas from betraying him. Judas wouldn't know where this meeting was till the last minute. But now, Judas knows. Oh, we go over there to the garden. This is where we spend the night every night. And now he's going to be able to rat him out and turn him into the authorities. So it says in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That prayer is central to everything that we're doing here. I want to look at that prayer as we go through this. But just keep in mind, Jesus has already told Peter just 
within the last hour, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that when you return, you may strengthen the brethren. And so, this, this prayer is central to everything we're doing. Communication, connection with God, hearing God, seeing God, talking to God, looking to God. What do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you hear when you talk to God? What did Judas see? What did Peter hear? What did Jesus see when he looked at you? at me, at Judas, at Peter. I want to look at this. I want to see this. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We read in the other gospels, this was Peter, James, and John. They were able to go a short distance away. Here it says a stone's throw. And in the other Gospels, it says a little way. So a stone's throw is a rough measurement of how far you can throw a stone. Well, that's going to be different with every person and the size of every stone. But we know that it's not that far because it's within earshot. And this can be heard what's going on. But nevertheless, Jesus moves on away. He needs some time. I want to say alone, but really it's not. It's time with his Father. He needs time in prayer. He needs time at the throne room of grace. He needs that time with his Father. As much as he needs it, I think we need it. And this is one of the things that we're going to see as we look into this. It says, uh, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup away from me. This cu a cup, it's a metaphor. It's a euphemism for something that you have to receive and drink from. Now, this isn't the cup like they just shared at communion, although I will say that cup represented his blood shed for us. Okay? And so this connection is very close. But as we look at this club, I want to just take you to a couple passages throughout the Scriptures. Read them really quickly. Isaiah writes about this cup in Isaiah 51. At verse 17, we read, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jeremiah repeats something very similar to that. In Jeremiah 25, at verse 15, we read, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. This cup of fury, we might have also heard it called the tr cup of trembling. It's a cup of wrath. That's what this word means. A cup of poison, a cup of displeasure a cup of rage, a cup of anger. And Jesus says, if it's your will, Father, take this rage, take this anger, take this displeasure, take this poison, take this wrath away from me. Because Jesus would have to drink down to the dregs all the sin of the world. I can't even imagine drinking my own, let alone yours, let alone all of ours, let alone everybody who ever or walked the face of this earth, including those who don't want to go to heaven, including the Judases of the world, including those who would ignore him, betray him, reject him. He took it all. He said, Father, if there's any other way, not my will, though, thy will be done. In Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 4, we're instructed to look to Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you see when you look into the garden? What do you see when you see this rabbi on his knees, broken, 
praying, crying out vehemently. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, he started it, and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Despising the shame. Sinless, spotless, pure, holy Jesus, knowing that he would have to jump into that cesspool of humanity and just drink it all down. And it broke his heart. And yet, and I, this is so important for all of us as Christians to understand, there is no shortcut to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. And we must go through the cross. There is no other way. And we don't want to go through the cross. It's painful. It's shameful. It's hard. And yet he is the author and finisher of our faith. He has gone that way before us. He's the pioneer. He's led the trail. We walk in his footsteps. But not only do we have to go through the cross, you're all going to have to do it. I got to do it. We all got to do it. We all got to confess who we are to God and acknowledge that it's our sin that put him on the cross. But don't overlook that we look to the cross and through the cross for the joy that was set before him. Yeah, it's hard. It's awful. And, and it's easy for me on a Sunday morning to stand here in the pulpit and say, it's hard, it's awful. But y'all know what I mean when you've got to go through that. I don't know what words to use. It's hard. It's awful. It's real. It's the cross. And there's no other way. But there's joy. His mercies are new. There's joy in the morning. And so we see them, we see him, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, that's his prayer. Really? <laughs> Jesus just about sold you out? Oh, God, is there any way we don't have to do this? No. No, there's not. And you'd think at this point in time, Jesus God, who had this plan from before the foundation of the world, would understand there is no other way. But in the flesh, he's screaming, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way in his flesh but in the Spirit, not my will. Thy will be done. And any prayer you ever pray, whether you say it out loud or not, mindfully we should always be thinking, not my will. I know I'm praying for this job. I'm praying for this relationship. I'm praying for this health condition. I'm praying for these issues in my life. I'm praying for whatever's going on in the world. But... I'm praying because I'm a son, a child, coming to my father and saying, this is what I see, this is what I want, this is what I'd like, but the reason I'm talking to you is because I need to know what is your will. That's what counts. At the end of the day, I'm not coming here and praying that you might give me some kind of wonderful answer to my prayer. What I want is you and your will be done, whatever that might be. And it could be the answer to your prayer is not what you had in mind when you prayed that prayer. But thy will be done. You know, you, you're very familiar with this. There was a sinless man. He battled Satan, sin, self, and temptation in a garden. And he lost, saying, my will not yours, be done. His name was Adam back in the garden. And because of his 
sin, because of his prayer, because of his battle with temptation and his failure, Satan and sin and selfishness played him, and it's played all of us ever since. We read in Genesis chapter 3, the curse that came upon Adam. God speaking to him says, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. There was another sinless man. He battled Satan, sin and self and temptation in a garden, and he won. And this is how he won. This is how he fought his battle on his knees, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. That man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And because of his surrender, his complete emptying of himself, pouring himself out for others. We talked about that. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? He who is the poorest. And he poured his life out for you and for me and changed history. In Philippians chapter 2, you're very familiar with this, I'm sure, at beginning at verse 5, we read, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal God, with God, but made himself of no reputation. That, that word is ekenosis, which is to say he emptied himself out. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's a throne in this story. Right now, we're still in the trials. Yours be done. Verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, some of you may have different versions of the English translation of the Bible out of the Greek, and verses 43 and 44 may not appear in some of yours if they're based on a certain translation uh, that was done that doesn't believe these words belong here. Whether they belong here or not doesn't change at all the understanding or the meaning of this, but I think it's very interesting that Dr. Luke does record this. Being a physician, he notes this extent, the extreme agony that Jesus suffered for you and for me. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. I love that. They are ministering saints sent to minister to those who are inheriting salvation. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that the angels are there for you, for me. And they were there for the Son of God when he needed help. Think of that angel appearing to him in a couple more minutes as he's arrested strengthening him and being in agony, agony, just the depths of just passion and pain. Agony is to agonize, agonizo. Um, it's really the crux of everything that's happening here, that Jesus would just go to the, feel the, the depths of human depravity. Can't even imagine it. We've, we've all agonized over things, and a lot of times I agonize over stupid things I do some of the greatest agonies I have. But here Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet he has to carry that weight on him. He being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, 
it does say like. It's a simile. It doesn't say they were drops of blood, but they became like drops of blood. And this could be translated in a couple different ways. It could be that he's just under such intense pressure as he's praying that it just causes him to break out in sweat. And the sweat is pouring off of his brow so profusely that it looks as though he was bleeding. It's just drip, 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 drip. (laughs) Some of you might have done that this week out working in the heat. You know, you can really work up a sweat. But there's another, there's a condition called hematidrosis, and it's a, it's a physical condition, it's noted medically, where capillaries near the sweat glands under intense pressure can burst, and that blood can bleed into the sweat glands and pour out mingled with blood, and so it tinges the blood, or tinges the sweat, red. That's hard to say for sure what either of these would be, but interesting that Dr. Luke would note it. He's always taken note of these physical afflictions of Jesus Christ, the God-man, that, that he lived and suffered the way you and I suffer. And so this isn't somebody that can't understand or relate to us as he's going through all of this on our behalf. It goes on in verse 45. Or No, I want, uh, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 5, give it a little bit of understanding on this maybe. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, at verse 5, we read, So also Christ did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but, verse 7 of Hebrews 5, who in the days of His flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from the death, was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by all things, by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him taking it to the cross, taking it to prayer, just falling on your knees. Uh, Absolutely what Jesus did for us. And then as we see something we can emulate, we can follow along in that. Uh, The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, these are some of the last words that Paul would write as he's about to be executed for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the cause of the gospel. We read in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. That is the beautiful agony. That's what that translates into, the good fight. It's beautiful, but it's agony. But there's joy on the other side of it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What do you see when you see Jesus? What do you hear when you hear well here it's recorded by Luke they heard him cry they heard him cry out to God not my will thy will be done the other gospels record it was done three times he didn't stop it's not like a simple throwaway prayer this is the crux of it all Verse 45, when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Interesting, sleeping from sorrow. It's like this narcolepsy. Anybody know narcolepsy? Okay, it's a condition where you, you just can't stay awake. I remember when I was in Bible college, it was required that all Bible college students had to sit in the front row because nobody wants to sit in the front row. 
And so the pastor, just to make sure there was somebody in the front row, always made sure that we were always up front. And inevitably, after a week of working and studying and serving, and just, uh, you're bushed, you're just wiped out. And I can't tell you how many times I would just become overcome with narcolepsy right there in church with the pastor this close to me. I'm like, really? Why can't I be back there where he can't see me? But no, i got to be right there. I'm like, <sighs> I can't stay awake. Here, it's saying... Uh, they were, um, I'm sorry, sleeping from sorrow, from grief, from heaviness, from mourning. Why are they mourning? Why are they so heavy? What kind of grief are they going through? Any, any ideas? They're watching Jesus. How does it make you feel when you look at Jesus? on his knees, broken for you. His blood poured out for you. He's, he's God. He's Messiah. He's Savior of the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's a basket case. What's going on? He's my leader. I'm supposed to follow him. And they were sleeping for sorrow from watching and seeing Christ cry, from hearing him cry out. Not the last tears we're going to see this morning. He rose up from prayer and came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise up and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Pray again, pray again, pray more prayer, keep praying, don't stop. Why'd you stop praying? I thought I asked you to pray. <laughs> when did you decide that it's time to stop praying? Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. Watch therefore and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Why did you stop praying? Rise and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Matthew's gospel records as Jesus approached Judas and said, greet, or Judas approached Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And then he kissed him. Philema is the word. It's from the word phileo for love. It's an affectionate kiss. It's not a kiss on the lips. That's not the way they would do that. But they would put their hands on each other's shoulders and pull each other in and kiss on the cheek and, and, and warmly and tenderly. And that's the word that's used here. Jesus would say, recorded in Matthew, friend, why have you come? Most a painful, emotional wound, I'd imagine that Jesus is going to experience in this crucifixion. They're going to scourge him. They're going to mock him. They're going to put a bag over his head and punch him. They're going to hang him on a cross. They're going to drive nails through his hands and his feet. But I doubt that anything hurt as bad as this. That kiss of betrayal, the depth of treachery. In Psalm 27, verse 6, we read, and I went and covered it up, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's nice to have a friend that can tell you the truth straight up, even if it hurts. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In Psalm 41, David writes about a situation with Ahithophel, who was his close counselor and friend, who betrayed David when his son Absalom tried to take the throne from him. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15. And prophetically, as the events turned around with David and Ahithophel, and Absalom 
met his own end, Ahithophel went and hung himself. How prophetic. Same thing Judas is going to do. Friend, why have you come? You betray me with a kiss? Isaiah 29, verse 13, we read, People draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I can imagine just how broken Jesus would be that this one that he prayed all night to make one of his twelve would do this to him. Even though from the foundation of the earth, the son of perdition goes the way that it, that it was destined for him, that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it easy for you and I. Either plug your ears or put your steel-toed boots on, but for just one second, let me understand or say this, and I don't know how to say this. That makes it any easier. But there are people that we love that are close to us, that we do life with, family, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, friends, who are going to betray Jesus. They don't want to go to heaven. And we're going to have to deal with that grief. How on earth do you deal with that kind of grief? Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, despising the shame. You got to keep on walking. It's hard. I, I, I don't know how to make this any easier. It's not. It's hard. You betray me with a kiss? You betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. <laughs> we read in uh, John's Gospel that servant's name is Malchus. And uh, it's interesting to see how this all goes down. Uh, we remember that Jesus had told them those things which are written about me, must be accomplished. They do have their end. Isaiah wrote that I will be numbered amongst the transgressors. You guys make sure you've got a money bag, a knapsack, some swords. Oh, we got two. It's enough. That's enough. That's all, that's all it's going to take. And now, and we read in the other Gospels, the person who said oh, we got two, you know who that was? Peter. What are you, what are you doing bringing a sword to communion? Right? They had it with them. Go, Pete. We laugh because some of us are Pete. I don't doubt there's some of you packing this morning. <laughs> so, shit, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off the right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Again, Dr. Luke, the physician. Look what he did. He just touched him and his ear was better. And I'm sure Malchus is going for the rest of his life. You know, and, and as we look at this, it, it's, it's really interesting to me how this all kind of plays out. I was talking a little bit last week about the sword, and, you know, people have this idea. You know, Jesus says here, well, you need to go out into the world, and I'm not going to be with you anymore. And they say, well, that sword, it was only for this moment to make this prophecy come true. Well, then why did he include a knapsack and a money bag in the package? Basically, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. You're going to have to have some way to care for yourselves and take care of one another, and one of those will be defensive. And so... Okay, you've got enough. You don't need an armory. You don't need a bunker. You don't need to get umpteen thousand rounds of ammo, but you should be prepared to defend yourself in a hostile world. Um, and yet, what does Peter do with this sword? Is he defending himself? No. And in fact, if you look at it, we don't know if Peter was right or left-handed, but if he was, it says in one of the Gospels, he struck off Malchus's right ear. 
Now, if I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, if Peter's looking at you and I ha- I'm right-handed and I swipe at you, which ear am I going to get? Your left ear. Was he standing behind Malchus and walked up to try to whack him? We don't know. All this is speculation. Maybe Pete was left-handed. Maybe Malchus whirled around. He dodged, all that kind of stuff. We don't know. But we do know this. Pete was a bad shot. I'm sure he wasn't aiming for his ear. (laughs) Thank God Pete was a fisherman. Jesus says, permit even this, or suffer the suffering. Suffer thee thus far. In other words, he's saying, no more, stop. Okay? These things happened, but we're not going to go on with this. We're not going to raise up some kind of rebellion and usher in the kingdom of God through armaments and warfare. That's not how it's going to work. Stop. Permit even this. Literally, he says, you know, uh, knock it off. That's enough. You did what you did. He healed Malchus's ear. In this, I kind of segued into a thing where I'm spiritualizing for a moment. Let me be fair in saying all of that. But when we talk about the Word of God, that, that Word made flesh, the sword of the Spirit. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. God's sword, which is, we read, the Word of God. That's what we Christians, we need to be doing. We need to take up, this is a command, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is to say, take up the Word. What, what am I going to do with this? We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God, that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a cerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We battle on our knees. We battle with the Word of God. This is our offensive weapon. This is how we... We fight back. And yet, in this, I think it's very interesting. We read in Romans, in chapter 10 at verse 14, then how shall they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's how we go out and fight these battles. But we don't use the sword to hurt the hearers. What good does it do if you use your Bible and whack off people's ears where they won't listen and can't listen even if they wanted to? The Word is given to heal the hurt, not hurt the hearers. Nevertheless, permit it. That's enough. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And if you know anything about the topography of the Kidron Valley, the city of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, as you're sitting on the slope of the Mount of Olives, you're looking across the valley and there is the whole Temple Mount and the city of David spread out on a slope in front of you. As I mentioned, it's about 25 minutes from the upper room. And Caiaphas's house, where this temple guard would have come from, is right near there. Jesus would have watched, and the, the Gospels describe that it was the, the Sagon, or he's the, the chief of security of the temple, and the temple guards would be in this crowd. Also, it says in another Gospel, there's a Roman cohort with them. A cohort is a description of 600 Roman soldiers. And they're coming out at night with torches, and no doubt for 25 minutes while Jesus is praying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And sure enough, 
They can watch these torches just coming down the hillside, down through the city of David, down to the Kidron River, crossing the river, coming up to where they are. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Not my will, thy will be done. And here they are. And here's Pete, and he whacks off a servant's ear. No, no, that's not how we're going to do this. Here I was. You could, have, you could have arrested me all day long in the temple, but now you come to me as night. It says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Again, I just quoted out of Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Just a couple verses earlier, we read in 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. How many times has Jesus said, my hour is not yet come? My hour, it's not yet come. It's not time yet. My hour is not yet come. And now what does he say? This is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the hour that Satan has been waiting for from the day he was created, that he could take out the Son of God. This is his hour, the hour of darkness. Verse 54, and having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at his distance. If you're doing a harmony of the Gospels and putting all this together, there's actually a visit in between here to Annas, the high priest, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the acting official priest at that time. Annas, his father-in-law, because he had been high priest previously, still retained the most respect. So they went to Annas' house first, and we read about this interrogation at Annas' house. Then they go from there to Caiaphas' house. I've been there in the city of David in Jerusalem into Caiaphas' house, into the courtyard. And it, it's an amazing place to stand there and, and say, wow, this is where this all happened. Well, having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest. That would be Caiaphas' house. But Peter followed. But Peter followed. Good, Peter followed at a distance. It's funny with us. How close are you to Jesus? Now, to Peter's credit, all the others fled. It's funny, even in Mark's gospel, which Peter would have been the one to have been the uh, source for Mark as he wrote this down. Mark talks about a young man who in his haste trying to get away from the clutches of this mob had his clothes torn off and he fled naked. And most people believe that was Mark himself writing about that experience. But Peter, he did hang in there. After all, he had told Jesus, even though the rest of these deny you, I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. So Pete's hanging in there, but at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. First, he's with Jesus. Now he's at a distance. And now he's with those people who have arrested him. He's sitting amongst them at the fire. And a certain servant girl. Now, in our society, that might not read quite as strong as it does here. But in their society, servants are non-human. They're chattel. It's slavery. They don't count. And let alone a woman. That doubles down on it. And not just a woman, but a girl, a child. It's like three strikes and you're out. This, this little girl is absolutely no threat whatsoever. Certain, certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. Funny thing about kids, you can't fool them, can you? They know, you know, you think you're all good, and they're like, they look right through you. This man was with him. Verse 57, but he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. Denial. 
Pete, I know you mean well. Pete, I know you intend to go the distance with me. But Pete, before the cock crows thrice, you will have denied me three times. Once. Verse 58. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Have you ever been in this? You don't have to say. But have you ever been in a situation where you really didn't want people to know you were a Christian? You kind of just will we'll not make an issue of this. I, I, I don't want to be called out for that. Uh, classic is in schools nowadays for children. How hard it is to be a Christian in colleges. With the professors, they just, they meet you for lunch. It's the easiest thing just to try to just like, you know what? I'll just keep my head down and get through this. I'm not saying this to shame anybody. I, I've done it. I've, we, we, it's human. Pete's human. And Jesus knows he's human. I know you, Pete. I know your intentions. I know your good intentions, but Pete, you're going to deny me tonight, three times. But I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the brethren. Isn't it nice to know that even in our weaknesses, The spirit is willing, but the flesh, I mean, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. Even in our weaknesses, Jesus meets us in our weakness. Man, I am not. Verse 59, then after about an hour passed, another confidently affirmed saying, so about an hour, okay? So the interrogation with Jesus is going on upstairs. The fire is burning. People are throwing more wood on the fire. People are milling about. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. And Peter's gathered there doing his best to kind of keep a, a watch on Jesus, to be there for Jesus, not to abandon Jesus. But even there, he's denying him. After about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a, a Galilean. No doubt he probably started getting into a little bit of conversation and his, his, his hick slipped out. His twang, his accent. This man's a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus had predicted. But this is the punchline. And I'm going to have worship guys come on up. And immediately... While he was still speaking, and no doubt, as he says these things, he remembers. It was just a couple hours ago, Jesus told him, this is going to happen. And how often is it that the Lord has told us, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But I know you, I know your frame, that you're just, you're dust, but I'm praying for you. Do you know he's saying that right now? In heaven, he ever lives to intercede for me, for you, for us, for all the saints. Now this isn't a, a pass to deny Jesus, oh I'll deny him, and he'll intercede for me, and I'll be okay. Heaven forbid. We pray that we could understand what is happening here. What do we see? What is Peter seeing when he looks at Jesus? What is Peter hearing when he looks at the servant girl? The others gathered around the fire. 
as we look around and we see the things that are close to us, right? We're in the darkness. This is their hour. There's a campfire, this little world that we live in, and we huddle around our jobs and our family and our church, and we do this and we do that in our little bubble. But outside the bubble, it's dark and it's scary, and I don't really understand, and I'm just kind of in here, and I'm just trying to, just trying to get through the night. What do we see when all you can see is the campfire out to the shadows? You're missing the big picture. You're, you're not seeing the whole thing. And that's the same for you and me as we look at the world that we're living in. Truly, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on in this world that would cause people to fear, to be afraid, to be scared. And, and in fact, I am certain that is the tactic of many of these forces that are arraigned against us. This is the playbook of the devil and he has done it to the point that the media government forces global forces nations were constantly in a state of fear and what do you see when you turn on the tv right you're you're huddled around not a campfire but that little glowing tv what do you see you can't see the whole world but they just feed you fear 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 and you know it's a thing people can get addicted to that they can't go very far without pulling their phone out and seeing what the latest little fear thing is. That probably is some of us this morning in this room. It's an addiction. You can get addicted to this. And you just don't see the big picture. Maybe for some of you, you'll hear a rooster crowing. Kind of ironic on my phone. And I'm as bad as the next guy. I'm scrolling. I'm doing this. You know what my ringtone is? Most of you know. What's my ringtone? A rooster. <laughs> and maybe that's what you need for just a moment. As you're huddled around the fire, you're huddled, huddled around the, the screen. You need a rooster to say, wait a minute. There's a lot more. You're not seeing me. You're not seeing my plan. You're not seeing the big picture. Look at this. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What do you see when you see your Jesus on his knees, broken, in agony, and in prayer over you? What do you see when you see your Lord take those stupid things you do and touch and heal and fix those stupid things you do? What do you see? When you're following Jesus, but at a distance, what do you see when you're huddled around that glow and these voices that are accusing you and attacking you and challenging you? What do you see when you look at Jesus? It says, at that moment, their eyes locked. And that word for looked at translates to a look of compassion, a look of love, a look that says, Peter, I know. I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. I understand what sin has done to you, to this whole world. You don't need to be ashamed. Just look unto me, the author and the finisher of your faith. For the joy set before us, despise the shame. 
But there's a throne. It's on the other side of this cross. Don't let go. Just keep going with me. That's what God is saying to every one of us. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And now he had said to them, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You are the truth. You are the way. You are the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I can imagine. That's, that's a good place to be when you see not only your sin face to face, but you see your Savior who is about to die for you and your sin. You look into his eyes and you realize, I'm the cause of that. I'm so sorry, Lord. And he whipped bitterly. What do you see when you look at Jesus? What does Jesus see when he looks at you? It's really interesting. God has given us telescopes, right, through the wonders of science and the wisdom that he's given to man. We've been able to come up with so many breakthroughs, technology, and, and, the, and the, the, the things that we're able to do. And I don't know, this new telescope that's up there is bringing in images that like everybody's just gobsmacked. What is that all about? This is great. And with a telescope, you can see the heavenly host. With a microscope, you can see the heart of an atom. And yet God has given us something even more powerful than a telescope or a microscope. He's given us a tear. Because it's with a tear that you can see the heart of God. We'll wrap up with this verse out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm reading at verse 9. This is Paul as he writes to the church in Corinth. He had to write some pretty hard things to them. Words of rebuke and correction. He had to bring some of their sins out front for the whole world to see. We got it right here. It's on your lap. The sins of Corinth. You can see them. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, Paul writes, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And Judas went and hung himself. 2 Corinthians 7, 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Do you know how much God cares for you? He's looking into your soul right now. He's looking into mine. How can we read this and not understand that the word of God, it's alive, it's powerful, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides to the piercing of the bone and the marrow, to the soul and the spirit, and everything is naked and open to those to whom we must give account. And as God's word peers into our soul, sometimes it sees sin. And yet, it produces godly sorrow. Peter wept bitterly, and Peter will be restored. Amen? Jesus cried. Peter cried. Judas lied. 
Here we have the opportunity to cry out to God. <laughs> have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus will say, that one went away justified. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for what you have done for us, what you did in that garden, what you did at the table, what you did on the cross. Help us to understand your heart, to see clearly, to be broken, and to weep over our sinfulness, that in it we can see your holiness, your justice, your righteousness, your love. Help us, Lord, to walk in that love, in that hope, in that joy, and to be ambassadors of that good news that you became sin for us, that we might be your righteousness. Again, we thank you, and we pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would complete that work which you began in us until the day we look into your eyes face to face. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.